0: It's 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6. Would you read, please?
1: Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, even as we obtain mercy, we faint not. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled in them that perish, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn upon them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Seeing it is God that said, Light shall shine out of darkness, who shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ.
0: So what do you learn about salvation and atonement in this passage?
2: Well, in verse 2 it appears to be an antidote to shame.
0: Okay. We've renounced the shameful things that one hides. <coughs> Paul's really into transparency here, isn't he? Anything else?
3: Part of the backdrop to this is that uh, the Jewish understanding of the world was that uh, there's the, uh, a 2 worlds view. There's the present evil age and the age to come. And so Paul had this dynamic throughout his writings. And so here you can see he's highlighting or talking about it says in verse four, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, right? All of those who are still living in the present evil age are under Satan. This is darkness, and Christ represents uh, the light, right? Which is to come, and he says that light has shined into our hearts, right? So it's broken through the darkness, and this is how we overcome the present evil age. Even though as Christians we live in the present evil age. The light is something within us, and it can't dispel uh, that. Uh, I mean, it, it can shine out to help dispel the darkness.
0: Okay, let's, let's talk about this darkness. But before we do, I want to talk about this veiled. Mm-hmm. This veiled. Uh, he turns this on the Jews. If you really look at this carefully in chapter 3. He says that the people's faces are veiled because all they they want is Mount Sinai. They they want the old they want the law, the 10 commandments, and they don't want the ministry of justification and they don't want the glory that Moses saw on Mount Sinai when God expressed his character, God gracious, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant goodness and truth. And then Moses comes down from the mountain, and from seeing God's backside, his face is just shining, and, and the people can't handle it. Because they're veiled, Paul says. They have a veil over the face because they don't want to see this light that is going to dispel the darkness.
4: Well, it, to me, it, the reason we don't want to see the light is because being selfish humans, we want to be the ones that are in charge of what needs to be done. Follow the rules. Follow the regulations. Follow, rather than just accepting that it's coming from outside, inside to us.
0: Okay. So we we want control. Is that what you're saying? Uh, we want in, in a power model. The truth doesn't matter. Hmm. In fact, it better not have it because
2: well, the,
0: you lose power when you have the truth. Yeah. The,
2: the truth has this nasty habit of bringing things out that
0: <laughs> disempower you. Exactly. <laughs> And, uh, Well, if you, if you think about it, most of the means people use to control other people are manipulative, secretive, disingenuous—all uh, the things that are opposed to light. They're, they're secrets. They're they're uh, not transparent. Uh, so you bring the light. You bring transparency. Because, actually, we talk about light as a metaphor for truth in the Bible, but actually, when you think about it, light is not the thing itself. Light allows us to see the thing itself. So it brings transparency. Lucifer is an angel of light. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to be transparent. Says in this case, the God of the, this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, which in Greek is good news of the glory of Christ. I'm reading from verse four: Who is the image of God? He's he's using a genitive chain here because he's trying to get them from point A to point C. <laughs> That point A, he starts with the light, then he goes to the gospel. Actually, I think there's four, yes, four in this chain. There's the light, but the light is the good news about the glory, which is, what is the glory of Christ? Is it just amazing light? What is the does the glory represent?
4: Well, no, it's our character.
0: How do we know that? I'm, I'm just probing to get some biblical support for that.
4: Well, the verse in, uh, in this translation because it says the knowledge of his glorious character.
0: Yeah. But where does, where does he get that? Go, go to Genesis, I mean Exodus. Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's glory. God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim to you my name. And of course name in the Hebrew Bible represents character as well.
3: But Jesus in John 17 prays the father that he would have the glory that he had with him before the
0: Yes, there's there's a glory means more than just character, but but when Jesus when when God encapsulates his glory in a way that we can relate to he call, refers to it as his goodness. I will make all my goodness fast before you and proclaim for you my name. The glory... I, I Ellen White expresses it this way in Desire of Ages uh, 764, that the glory of him who is love will destroy the wicked because they're out of harmony with him. So she, she refers to it as the glory of him who is love. I see God as one whole. And love is the most all-prevailing, all-encompassing aspect of who God is. His power, his omniscience, all the things that he has, all the tools that he has for running the universe are not separated from love. Love is the core of who God is. Uh, We have separated everything to neat and tidy little boxes, and we have done damage to understanding God and and who he is in, in all his glory. So the gospel, the light of the good news of the glory, that is the character of Christ, who is the image of God. So if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father, is Paul's reminder of that text. So I want to back up now. In verse 4 it says, "In In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing this glory, this character of God. And you think of how our world is going today. It's getting increasingly blind, isn't it? And if, if we can't see through the immigration issue, if we can't see through the violence, the increased violence that is in our world and real, recognize where it comes from, uh, if we can't see how we're deteriorating and, and how we don't care about other people, It's obvious we don't have a reflection of the image of God very closely. And and I realize that some things are not easily resolved simply by Scripture. But we are told in Leviticus 19 that we're to love the immigrant as ourselves. And I have yet, I'm I'm going to be doing a Sabbath school on immigration. Mm -hmm. Wish me well. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the choir room Sabbath school.
3: When is that? At the end of the
0: summer. I beg for the longest possible day. <laughs> and I, that topic was proposed to me. I didn't choose it exactly. I mean, I finally did, but...
3: Under coercion. Pardon? Under coercion.
0: <laughs> no, they didn't coerce me. They would have let me off the hook. I was going to recommend somebody else do it. And then I started thinking what I could do with it. And And I think what happened is I was I was preparing for the final exam in one of my classes, Biblical Ethics, or it was the last day of class or something, and I came to this text in Leviticus, You Shall Love the Immigrant as Yourself. And I was like, whoa. That's a very hard text for Jews. They do not like that text.
4: Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't like that text, then.
0: (laughs) And so I thought, maybe I could do something with this. So I've been going through Facebook. There's Facebook postings right and left about immigration. So I just, I'm going to be gleaning for what I can for discussion. It's going to be mostly discussion-driven. Um, and I have yet to study immigration in the ancient Near East, but immigration was common. Aliens lived among Jews or among the Hebrew people, among the Israelite community, uh, a lot. And one of the most that you can name, actually, the peoples, that groups that were the most pervasive through all the, all the different cultures. The Amuru, the Amorites, the Hittites, and that was about it. So you have these people groups that were basically everywhere. And yes, they were in Hatti, which is the land of Hita, the Hittites, and they were in western Mesopotamia, which is the land of the Amuru. But they were, they were very pervasive. In fact, you can ask the question, what is a true Babylonian? And you have a hard time answering that, because the first dynasty of Babylon was Amorite. It wasn't Babylonian. And yet they adopted all the Babylonian customs, language, and everything. So it looked Babylonian, acted Babylonian, but they were really Amaran. And then you had the last dynasty of Babylon was Chaldean. The Chaldeans weren't originally Babylonian. Now, all these people groups were Semitic, so they were all loosely related except for the Hittites. The Hittites were Indo-European. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to look forward to seeing how immigration worked in the ancient Near East and see if I can find what would help us with You Shall Love the Immigrant as Yourself.
4: Well, I, you know, I've been telling you, I've been studying the 1200s, the Anatolia and the Turks and all that, where they originated.
0: Anatolia is where the hatti was. Yeah.
4: And it's amazing in groups, but by the 1200s, 1100s, there were lots of different Christian groups all over the place. Because it's from Europe and down. And they were living in very, very good harmony.
0: Yeah, well, in the ancient Near East, all of these people groups tend to live in harmony. But it, it it is will be interesting to see exactly how they were treated by the regular groups that were there. Of course, if they're a big enough quantity of immigrants, they will tend to move in a little more easily. Yeah. But what do we do with one family? Right. How is one family going to be treated? So... This not only has to do with our salvation, but it has to do with our treatment of other people, doesn't it? And getting, getting saved from sin is not, it's not just getting in a right relationship with God. It is getting saved from being sinful in the way we treat other people. He, Paul does this genitive change chain again at the end of this verse. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus' face reflected God's face and his glory. And the reason he veiled his glory in his human body was because we couldn't bear it. Or we would worship him for all the wrong reasons, because we were enamored with the power that he had instead of his character. All right, Adrian. Would you read verses seven to twelve?
1: Sure. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair.
0: especially write these verses. What do you gain from these that might help our discussion?
1: Looking at verse 10, we carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life may be revealed in our body. Is that specifically saying the death of Jesus has to do with um, the, the hope and the life is the character, or is it a reference towards mortality?
0: I've always seen it as a reference towards mortality. Okay. Paul seems to take the death of Jesus as a a living experience for the Christian, that we're to vicariously live the death of Jesus in our bodies. And, and of course, he did every day. When he said, I died daily, I... I I often wondered if Paul got up every morning and prepared himself for the eventuality that he might die that day, because death was a constant companion with him. I, he was always faced with dangers and destruction, and people after him. And, and it, this maybe go back may may uh, refer back to First Corinthians. Is it First Corinthians? No. It's, it's later in 2 Corinthians. This was the Stern letter that we talked about last week. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and starting with verse 21, part B, "...but whatever anyone dares to boast of," I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are the Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of love? Christ, I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless floggings, often near death. Five times I have received from the Jews forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from river, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger from the City, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger with false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked.
2: I'll stop there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I think what you were saying as far as preparing himself every morning to die perhaps in some ways actually had more to do with preparing himself for the day to to live for Christ regardless of where that yeah. ended up going um, and i think in many ways it's it's harder I think that's it's, harder, what to, I it's harder to live for god than it is to die for god yeah. um, especially
0: if you're living through all that he was
2: right um, and that of uh, being willing to say okay i'm going to follow wherever you go today or you know wherever it is you take me mm-hmm. and i'm going to leave the consequences or the results or whatever, mm-hmm. f- firmly in your hands. Whether it looks like we're making progress, whether it makes looks like we're not, whatever. Ultimately, as long as I'm obedient, then it becomes God's responsibility as to what happens uh, at that point. But it, it's really hard to be able to to not try to to play it safe or to to you know uh, or to to just be worried. Well, what are people? I mean. You know, so often we stop and maybe not say something that we feel like maybe we should, just because we're worried what someone might think of us. Much less that I'm not worried about that they're going to pick up a rock and throw it at me. Mm -hmm. Um, But
0: uh, yeah, I I would call this a living death. mm -hmm. Uh, That Paul every day he died a living death for the sake of Christ. Well, I'm going to jump down the next section because he digresses. Uh, He's writing very personally to the people. Uh, So verse 16, uh, Katrina, would you read 16 to the end of
3: the chapter? Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I guess I shouldn't have skipped verses
0: 13 through 15, because he says, Therefore we do not lose heart.
3: I should read those ones to
0: them. You want to read them?
3: Okay. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God.
0: Therefore, we do not lose heart. So, what is it in verses 13 through 15 that causes Paul not to lose heart?
2: The promise of the resurrection.
0: Promise of the resurrection. It, this will end. This is not the, the final end of the journey. Okay. Anything else?
4: Every cloud has a silver lining.
0: <laughs> it seems to me that verse 12, we kind of glided over. So death is at work in us, but life in you. It's it's what he accomplishes in the lives of the believers that helps him not to lose heart, as well as the resurrection.
4: I yeah. ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's really important to have that, because otherwise it would just nothing's here, but you're going to have a great ending. I
0: mean, yeah, you're not doing, you're doing? really accomplishing anything to but suffering. <laughs> yeah,
4: that. you're gonna suffer a lot. And just, yeah. just wait for the ending. Oh, great! Yeah. <laughs> so we need, yeah. need comfort. We need support, and and uh, and a way to do this.
0: And to me, the greatest compensation for suffering hmm. is uh, people who believe. People who come because because you were there. Hmm. God was able to work on their hearts and bring transformation.
2: I heard uh, Johnny Erickson taught us speak once, and she was talking about verse 17 here uh, and how that has been a, something that she has hung on for most of her adult life mm-hmm. about saying our our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us, but that you know that we will get this you know eternal uh, reward afterwards. And how even though her life has been so difficult ever since her accident, that she still keeps kind of coming back to this verse and saying, "Okay, it may seem like a lot right now, but in the big scheme of things, this is going to ultimately just think- seem like a very short, um, yeah. minor thing compared to what."
0: You think, you think of what Johnny um, would have been without that accident. She would have been an ordinary human being, mm-hmm. living an ordinary, kind of lukewarm Christian life, not making an impact on the world. You think mm-hmm. of the impact she has made. Right. Mm-hmm. It's something that wouldn't have happened in any other
2: way.
1: We were reading yesterday. Um, we've been going through as a family the CS list, The Way to Glory, and like one of the chapters he spent a bunch of time pointing out, you know, you look at the these, these whole countries, those political systems and they look so massive and so so long term oh, yeah. and then you talk to one person and that that's gonna outlast like that's that's actually eternal. These empires last only, you know, a handful of hundred years. Right. And it's bizarre to think that you're interacting with people who are Bigger or longer or m- more important than than what feels like the or framework. hand down
0: a greater legacy.
1: Yeah, I have to go back and, and reread the context for C.S. Lewis's use of the words "the weight of glory" because he references it both as a benefit and as a burden. And here it's it's a hopeful thing, and this is where I have to see the chapter. But he's also talking about how it how it can be a burden that it's it's like we, it's the we weight. have axis and there's yeah. still weight.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the the Hebrew term for the glory of God is the the kavod Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Actually, kavod has a yes. uh, uh an element of weightiness yes. of mm-hmm. physical yes. weight yeah. that is is part it of it. It means
0: that. heavy. It's its pristine meaning It's heavy. Yeah. Uh in in adjectival adjectival sense. Um
1: Oh, uh, well, that makes more sense even than the word responsibility. It's it's something a little bit beyond yeah. that. It's
0: it, if if you're honored, it's because you have a weighty reputation, a weighty uh, persona, a, a weighty appreciation from the people. I mean, the people see you as someone to listen to and someone to respect. Uh, so kavod is is that kind of honor. And by the way, in an Israelite community, which mostly was rural, your towns were inhabited for safety, but you went out to the fields and worked every day. Uh, it was a very agricultural setting. Where you gained honor was in the city gate, where the business transactions were taken, and where the court sat in judgment. And if you got to be a judge that meant you really had arrived. You had attained something. So you're, you, were, you were honored for your wisdom. You were honored for your insight. You were honored for making good decisions. Uh, you were honored for being mature and being capable and trustworthy, particularly trustworthy. I, I rely on uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs who has written uh, and spoken extensively about the matter of trustworthiness as dominant in Hebrew culture, that the whole covenant is about trust and trustworthiness, uh, as opposed to a contract, which is a different representation. But I got a little off track. <laughs> we have only four minutes And I'm hesitant to start chapter 5 because chapter 5 is important to our discussion, especially in the end of it. Um, But I think we would do well to read the whole chapter.
3: Mm -hmm. I think one last point here about verse 18. Mm -hmm. It seems to be an allusion to, to Greek philosophy. You know, that's scattered throughout Paul's writings uh, you know, in the Corinthians, it's a, it's a bunch of new Gentile Christians and, you know, any Christians living in that era, you know, under the Romans, it's very risky. Um, but this idea that uh, the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal, um, it seems to be speaking to uh Kind of a Greek view of the world as well. Like he started off, we started off with kind of like a Jewish perspective, but he's included a Greek perspective here because it's also something that actually they could uh, relate to. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, the
0: Greeks were all for looking beyond what can be seen. Yeah, what is seen is is temporary. It doesn't.
3: It doesn't last. But what
0: can be seen is eternal. What cannot be seen is eternal.
1: Was it Paul, and I'm not remembering, who defined um, hope as the evidence of things unseen? There's a, there's Actually, a it's the
0: book it's of it's Hebrews, Hebrews, and we don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews. Okay. Um, okay. But, so yeah. It seems it's, like an
1: allusion to the same. Like, yeah, it, it does seem, seem a
0: little bit. Um, Hebrews 11, chapter 1, I mean, verse 1.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, now faith is... My version has the assurance of things hoped for, mm-hmm. or I think the King James version says the evidence of things hoped mm-hmm. for, the conviction of things not seen. So it, that would that would fit very nicely with Second mm-hmm. Corinthians. It would make
1: sense to say so. We 4, fix our eyes on 18. hope.
0: Yeah, we're a sad lot without hope. Mm-hmm.
3: It's true, but it's not true because yes, it seems like we're temporary, but we're actually. With Jesus, will have eternal life, and right. He's going to, you know, renew the earth. He's not going to completely destroy it. He's going to renew it. So, yeah. But I think His point was to give them a sense of assurance. And
2: that's certainly the way the world works, and the what, you know, whether it be politics or in society or um, just the things that can be so easy, so easily become all important, whether it be, you know, fame, power, possessions, you know, whatever, that these things um, are all temporary.
0: Well, and of course, verse 18 is in light of 17. Mm -hmm. When we're suffering, we tend to think of everything is now, and, and this is the way it's always going to be. We have a hard time getting past that. Because of our suffering. But Paul wants us to see what can't be seen. Exactly.
2: I mean even look at like John the Baptist when he was in prison. I mean it's for everything that he had seen and the way God had led in his life and that he'd introduced Jesus. But once he was actually in prison, it appeared that he had a hard time seeing beyond those prison walls and had to send his his followers to go double check with jesus uh, did we get this wrong uh, or is you know that that he you know needed them but then jesus said no actually we'll just look around and, and, and just see you know and what, he, what's he,
0: he he pointed to the evidence mm-hmm. uh, uh, instead of saying oh yes i am the messiah just go right. tell john mm-hmm. like that would satisfy it doesn't satisfy it doesn't make something so to mm-hmm. make it clean
3: Jesus avoided that term Messiah because of the political connotations and he didn't want that to be spread. So probably that's why he said, look at the evidence.
0: I'm sure that was part of it. But I also think about the fact that God has always based every his, his on evidence. trustworthiness on evidence.
4: On evidence
2: yeah. Well, which is, if you get back to the, the whole great controversy thing, I mean, Satan accused God of being unfair and of, of having a faulty character from the beginning and, and being, essentially saying, you're a liar. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if I accuse you of being a liar, you turning around and saying, no, I'm not, <laughs> it doesn't mean, a doesn't thing. mean anything. Uh, and that it's only over time and with evidence that you will be able to tell well, which one of us is actually telling the truth.
0: And that, I think, was an early axiom of my life, is that saying something didn't make it so. Mm-hmm. And I ran right into that with playing hide-and-seek. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I said, let's play hide-and-seek, and everybody shouted, not it, not it, and then they pointed at me and said, you're it. And I said, I'm not it. Yes, you are it. <laughs> I took so long to try to figure that out. I finally had to be told, "You ha- everybody who says not it is not it. And the last person who says not it is it, and I was outraged. <laughs> it's like how can that be? That saying saying something makes it so. <laughs>
3: so you were the seeker then. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I I was age six, and to me the world was operative on cause and effect relationships. So that's been the driving force of my whole life. I'm not it.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the central focus to me of, of chapter four and part of chapter three is this glory of God. And we, it's to have a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is the goal. So, another way of looking at salvation is that Satan, the God of this world, blinded everybody's eyes about the character, the glory of God. And Jesus came to reveal that glory and that character. And so we see his face as the face of the Father. And that brings us back to trust. Paul doesn't say it here, but he understands that that once we see that God is not the way Satan has made him out to be, he sees that God is, is one we can trust. And once we're one to trust, God can heal the damage done of sin. We'll, we'll probably pursue more of that in uh, Galatians when we come to it. Galatians is one of those books that we'll read every chapter uh, because every chapter has to do with salvation just about. All right. That closing prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our darkness in our delusions about you but you came in the person of your son to bring the glory of the, the knowledge of the glory of your character to us. and we see that in the face of Jesus. We see it by faith because we have not seen him face to face. But we know that in this temporal world where we suffer and we live a, a life of suffering for you, that we have an eternal wage of glory. And that glory will come when you do appear in Jesus to take us home. May we live in that hope. May we live in the hope of your salvation. We thank you, in Jesus' name,
1: amen.